Hey, what's going on, everybody? So before we get started with today's episode, this is actually going to be another accredited episode to where you can actually um, listen to the, the whole episode here and then um, go to the link uh, in our show notes that'll take you to freece.com's website. Um, take the, the questions, pass those, uh, answer the, the evaluation, and then you will get one hour of continuing education credit towards your license. Uh, this is for members of FreeCE only. Um, if you're not a member, I highly encourage you to check out their uh, their annual, you know, unlimited membership. Um, if you use the discount code CoreCon, so that's C O R C O N R X, um, all one word uh, in the discount code um, field, they will give you 15% off the cost of the the yearly annual membership. And um, you'll get access to not only our podcast episodes, and we're going to be doing a few of them here over the next month um, that will be accredited, but uh, you'll also get access to all of FreeCE's library of lectures and monographs and everything, tons and tons of, of great content. So make sure you check that out. So if you're already a member and you're getting credit for today's podcast, make sure you follow the link in the show notes below and then type in recovery is the password. And that will start the process of um, allowing you to take the test and then go from there. You get your credit. And I uh, hope you guys like this episode. Let's get started. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to our second official mm. accredited episode of Core Console RX. Yeah, I'm excited. Cool. What's good, man? You doing I, all right? Yeah, I'm doing good. Hop straight off of vacation, ready yeah. to rock and roll. You look very dressed up today for being straight off yeah, vacation. I, had, I was in clinic today. Were you in clinic? Yeah, I went kind of late. Speaking of uh, neurology clinic yeah this might be something uh today's topic might be something you've maybe had to run into a little bit i have but not in my current job i had a rotation on a um addictions unit in a hospital did you an iop yeah nice so I ran into this kind of thing it's very interesting so tough. T- it's tough it is um so today we are going to be talking about opioid use disorder uh, i know the idea of um, you know the, the opioid epidemic has been something that's been in the news and and you know kind of at the forefront um, of our attention for quite a while now but we're gonna kind of walk through the actual disorder itself some of the background information um, kind of figure out why this is such an issue um, as far as a public health standpoint um, and then we're going to talk about some possible treatment options yeah so we're gonna yeah. cover a, a few different things. But, um, Drugs and non-pharmacologic. And it's kind of taken a backseat to a, another epidemic that's been happening the last year, but nonetheless, it's still been there and um, is still a significant issue, of you, course. Are you referring to that, uh, what's that called? It's COVID-19? It's Carverona, or is that how you say it? What <laughs> yeah, is that, that was... That was a, I'm familiar with it. I think I've heard of it. It was a rough, rough uh, pandemic for sure. Yeah. Um, definitely uh, very glad to at least feel like I'm, we're all moving in the right direction now to be have this in the you know behind us yeah so. for sure all right so as far as opioid use disorder i guess let's just start off with some kind of background information of as far as why is this such a big you know issue and why why is, are so many different healthcare um, organizations talking about it um just to give you a couple just numbers and this is um basically from the uh, what they call the TIP 63, and that's sort of like the guidelines that were uh, established for treating patients with opioid use disorder. Um, and it's it's very it's, it's from actually published by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, um, and it is 332 pages long. So we won't read all of it to you, but just like most of it, right? Yeah, but yeah, just like 300 pages of it. So it is something that's completely free to download. So if you are interested in this topic, I highly encourage you to take a look at that. Um, so they call it uh, TIP 63, um, and the abbreviation for that organization is S-A-M-H-S-A. Um, and so they kind of give just some stats sort of throughout the entire you know guideline. So just to give you a couple of them that are kind of mind-blowing in my opinion, um, in 2015... The estimated cost of the opioid epidemic was five hundred and four billion dollars with a B. With a B. That is a lot of cash. And that was in twenty fifteen. Yes. I can only imagine what that's looking like now. Yeah. It's all trending upwards, I'd imagine. 
they report that an estimated uh, uh, of 1.7 million Americans have opioid use disorder related to opioid painkillers, and about 526,000 have heroin-related opioid um, use disorder. They mentioned that opioid overdoses caused 46,800 deaths nationwide in 2018. This exceeded the number caused by motor vehicle crashes. I mean, that, that's crazy. And the, the whole just kind of guideline, like I said, is just like one of these after the other. Um, the opioid-related emergency department visits more than doubled from 2005 to 2016. Two million people in the U.S., ages 12 and older, have uh, opioid use disorder involving prescription opioids, heroin, or both in 2018. That's a, a lot of people. That is a lot. And and that goes to kind of how the waves of this um, issue have kind of come and gone, or I guess just come since 1999 or so, um, when initially it was prescription opioids, right? And last year in the news, there were big pharma companies being sued and that sort of thing. Um, so prescription opioids and then heroin, and now fentanyl is the big um, culprit. And it's becoming a big issue, not just obviously in you know, healthcare facilities and whatnot, but fentanyl, for, as far as a street drug, you know, that's what they're using to cut heroin with, and, right. and kind of um, it becomes, uh, you know, it has this this, this strong fentanyl um, component to it, and the you know ability for it to actually cause an overdose is so much higher than just with you know pure heroin would be, yeah. and so there's it's gotten just spiraling out of control as far as the number of people that are being affected by this. Yeah. And we'll go through the criteria for um, how somebody might be uh, diagnosed with the disorder. There's a difference between misusing opioids and actually having opioid use disorder. Um, And you might have thrown a similar statistic out, but 26% of patients um, within a lot of United United States healthcare systems, this is in one one study, being prescribed long-term opioids met this criteria for opioid dependence. 26%. 26%. That's like we're one, one in four, which you could imagine. I mean, you, you've had those patients who take chronic opioids and they're not necessarily abusing or even misusing, um, but they become physically and psychologically dependent on opioids. And um, yeah, so we're going to talk about some ways to, um, to treat that though. I mean, there is, there is a difference between somebody who has erratic behavior, dangerous behavior, um, associated with their opioid use and someone who's maintained on chronic opioids long term, um, and who you're going and how you're going to triage that, and who you're going to emphasize trying to initiate um, uh, medication therapy for opioid use disorder for sure. So let's kind of just go through some basic terminology. So I think that's kind of important. Start with the basics because I feel like if you don't have uh, some of the terminology down, then you may not be able to. To kind of meet patients where they're at, depending on you know the clinic setting that you're in. So opioid itself, you know, it's a natural or a synthetic substance that's going to be acting on one of the three main opioid receptors. So when you see an opioid receptor, it's usually broken down into either a, a mu opioid receptor, kappa, or delta. Um, and then opioids can typically have that uh, analgesic effect that we're kind of looking for when it comes to um, treating pain. Um, but they also have some central nervous system depressant effects as well as the ability to cause euphoria at certain doses. And that's really where a lot of the problems start is, you know, patients get kind of um, that euphoric effect and start, you know, maybe whether it's they had maybe underlying depression or whatever the case may be ahead of time, they, they start kind of self-treating and feeling better and they need more and higher doses. And then it just becomes more and more risky behavior. They may go from prescription uh, opioids to um, more hardcore, like street opioids, like heroin. And, um, you know, there's multiple uses specifically with heroin too. And th- these are some terms that I've actually, believe it or not, I've actually heard this around my clinic and I didn't know what they were talking about. And now I feel kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Um, but, uh, because a patient had mentioned that, um, he has a neighbor that is into skin popping and I was like, Oh, like he pops his pimples. That's not what skin popping. I would imagine like taking the rubber band and spreading it out with your middle finger and thumb and like popping, you know, Mm, like a triangle and pop your skin. That hurts a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Man, bring a middle school back. So skin popping is where you are administering the opioid or in most cases heroin subcutaneously. They call it, that's the slang term for it. They can also use it intranasally. So they call that, you know, obviously snorting or sniffing. Um, intravenous is you know, 
quote unquote shooting up, or they also can refer to as mainlining. Um, intramuscular use is muscling. And, uh, and so those are some of the terms. If you happen to kind of hear a patient referring to that, that may be them talking about them or someone they know using um, opioids in a um, not proper way. And as far as heroin itself goes, it's a derivative of morphine. Um, definitely the most common opioid that's abused by injection. Uh, I like the slang terms for heroin, which, you know, dope is more common, but also horse, smack, junk, tar. I think if I had to choose, I'd probably go with smack. Yeah, smacks. That'd be my favorite, right? Smack, smack sounds like... Uh, I guess it's, it just smacks you in the face. Yeah, it, smells, it sounds like a cereal. Isn't there some kind of smack? Like some corn pops or something? Something like that. I think corn, like some type of corn pops has sna- smack right on there, the front of it. There's a type of cereal. I don't know if it's corn pops, but there's one. Somebody, okay. somebody at home that loves them is like, what the heck? We'll find it. Yeah, we'll, we'll Google it for you guys later. Um, you know, as far as opium, that's the other, you know, that's, that's the actual... Um, opium that's extracted from the opium poppy. Um, and that's what contains morphine and codeine, um, codeine being the prodrug. Um, it's most commonly self-administered by smoking if they're actually using pure opium uh, and can also be eaten as well. Um, but that's going to be a lot more common in like the Middle East, um, in Asia. Um, in the United States, we have more of the injectable um, heroin, um, usually, you know, sometimes fentanyl, like coal sand, um, is, is usually a route of administration that we see in the U.S., um, as far as some other terms, uh, opiates, you know, that's an opiate refers to kind of like a subclass of opioids. Um, it's basically just where you have the alkaloid compounds that occur naturally, uh, in the opium poppy, um, including morphine. Um, and then you have the, like your synthetic opioids, like your oxycodone, your hydrocodone. Um, those are like semi-synthetic and then your true, like full synthetic opioids are things like fentanyl, um, tramadol and, um, yeah, things like that. So, uh, methadone's another one's considered full synthetic. Yeah, and um, obviously all these are going to be controlled substances because of their potential for misuse, addiction, diversion, um, all that stuff. There's a difference, like I said, between prescription drug misuse and prescription use or drug use disorder or opioid use disorder. Um, so, misuse is any use of a prescription med that's outside of what it was intended to do when it was prescribed right whether it's overusing it using it to get high or feel euphoria selling it um, you know diversion um, having it prescribed by multiple people or even getting it from non-prescribed sources or concurrently using it with other illicit substances or alcohol or controlled substances that weren't prescribed to you all that's misuse um uh, having opioid use disorder or any other use disorder is going, that's going to be a piece of it is the misuse. But then there's other factors that go into meeting the DSM five criteria, um, for the diagnosis. Um, you'll also may hear an older term, non-medical use, which, um, is just kind of another way of saying misuse, but that's kind of fallen out of favor. And most of the time they'll use the term drug misuse. Now, as far as diagnosing it from the DSM five's perspective, Um, they describe it as a pattern of opioid use leading to, um, significant impairment or distress, and they need you to meet two of the following criteria within a 12 month period. So I'm going to go through a few of these because, um, I I want you to know what they specifically mentioned in the DSM-5. So one, opioids are often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than what was originally intended. Uh, there's a persistent desire or even unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control the amount of opioids that they're using. Uh, a great deal of time is spent in activities um, necessary to get opioids, or use the opioids, or even recover from its effects. So we'll talk about um, withdrawal symptoms and even controlled withdrawals, um, medically um, uh, withdrawals that are kind of um, monitored by their doctor, essentially. Uh, cravings are strong desire or urge to use opioids. Recurrent opioid use resulting in failure uh, to fulfill obligations, whether that's at work or school or home or whatever. So their opioids are going to uh, impair that. Uh, continued opioid use despite having persistent or recurrent problems socially or interpersonally um, caused or made worse by opioids. So opioids are affecting their social life. Um, other activities related to their job, recreational activities, social activities are given up or they're reduced because of their opioid use. So basically it's just, um, greatly affecting their quality of life. Um, opioid use might be physically hazardous to them. 
Um, they're continuing to use opioids, um, even they have the, even though they have a knowledge of persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problems being made worse or being caused by the opioids. Um, so those are that's that's a list of, of things that they would look for if if you were um, a provider trying to diagnose this. They also during that diagnosis process they they do try to specify the severity of it. So for example, mild opioid use disorder would be the presence of two to three symptoms, um, moderate being four to five symptoms, and severe being six or more of those symptoms. So that can affect kind of where we start with therapy. Um, along with some other things. But um, the other thing they kind of want you to note uh, when you're first working a patient up for this is to kind of specify if the patient is in fact in early remission, um, which means that they've met the criteria for opioid use disorder, but none of the criteria for opioid use disorder have been met for at least seven, or excuse me, at least three months, but for less than 12 months. So Three months have gone by where, you know, the patient has not met that criteria, but in the previous 12 months they have, um, they're in early remission. Um, If the patient has kind of met the criteria in the past but has not met that criteria over the last 12 months, um, then they're in sustained remission. Um, And then you also want to hopefully specify if the patient's on maintenance therapy um, and whether or not, you know, they're being treated with like methadone or one of the treatment options that we're going to talk about a little bit later, um, or in a controlled environment as far as, you know, are, do they have access to opioids? Are the opioids restricted? Are they being are they in a treatment center? Um, and then, you know, from there, you just, like I said, mention the severity, and then you kind of get a full picture and um, ICD-10, you know, code to kind of work up that patient and get started on where you need to go from there with therapy. Yeah, yeah. And the last things they'll look at are, whether they see evidence of tolerance or withdrawal symptoms. So tolerance, if the patient is needing increased amounts of opioids to get that high or get whatever desired effect they're looking for, um, or they have a markedly diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of opioids. So they're not increasing the amount they're using, but they aren't getting the, the result. That would be tolerance. Withdrawal, you're going to see you know possibly characteristic opioid withdrawal symptoms, which we'll go through a little bit later. Um, or they're seeking opioids to be taken to relieve or avoid the withdrawal symptoms, which which you'll 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 see um, pretty frequently. So, you know, why besides obviously the stats that we talked about earlier, what are we worried about? What are the health consequences to someone having this diagnosis? Um, well, one of the the big ones and kind of probably most commonly discussed is the infection risk. So patients that are using IV drugs especially, so you know, it's one thing if they're abusing opioids that are prescription tablets or, or whatnot, but the, the IV drugs um, really puts them at high risk for not only things like cellulitis, um, but bloodborne pathogens like HIV, Hep B, Hep C, um, and then you know, multiple other bacterial infections as well, like pneumonia or even like tuberculosis um, can be higher risk in this patient population. So the infection risk from not only just that individual person, but from a just overall public health standpoint is a real problem. Um, and then also, you know, we have to worry about things like kind of the long-term effects of the opioid on that patient's system. Not everybody who uh, gets on opioids is, is intending to use them or abuse them um, in, in an irresponsible way. And in fact, so when I was uh, an intern or, a, you know, I guess a, a pharmacy intern, I wasn't finished with school yet. Um, I worked at a, a methadone treatment center. And one of the first things that I was kind of like shocked about, and I, and I kind of almost felt guilty about it because I had like this what I pictured in my head is what these patients look like. There were so many patients coming in here wearing nice suits and, you know, they were businessmen or women and they had just gotten an injury and they had just taken it longer than they should have. And they're trying to get off of it, but it's just, they're just hooked on that, um, you know, these tablets that they can't let go of just because of the withdrawal symptoms and whatnot. And just the number of people that were there that just absolutely like looked like everybody else. And I'm like, this is something that can happen to anybody if yeah. you're not careful. Yeah. And I'm sure it's TV and the media that have given us yeah. that stigma of what we would think, you yeah, know, someone absolutely. who's considered a drug addict or somebody who has opioid use disorder is, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is a lot of people who just were prescribed this for maybe not even that long a period of time, mm-hmm. but you know, became reliant on it because of pain or whatever reason. And yeah, now they're trying, they're seeking treatment. And so, Pain is kind of the first thing I wanted to kind of bring up because, 
you know, we, we use these as analgesics. We want to make sure that we're controlling the patient's pain. The problem is, is the longer you use these opioids, you actually get what's called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is basically that you have an increased sensitivity to pain. So the pain can be, you know, severe and chronic and can really be debilitating, and it essentially gets worse or at least the patient's perception of it gets worse the longer they're on opioids. So it's one of those things that, you know, when you have a patient that says, you know, oh, I'm in so much pain, you know, I need my my oxycodone. So for those of you who are like retail pharmacists or whatnot who, you know, maybe has somebody coming in trying to get it a couple of days early and they're saying, oh, I'm in so much pain, you don't understand. It's easy to kind of say, oh, you know, come on, are you really in that much pain? But for that particular person, the way that they actually sense pain is probably significantly more enhanced than someone who's never been on opioids before, especially if they've been on them for a chronic period of time. Yeah, what a strange, almost oxymoronic mm-hmm. reaction that people have to that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it can also cause uh, liver fibrosis, so scarring on the liver. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be associated with like hepatitis C or anything like that. Um, in fact, they don't even fully understand the mechanism behind the fibrosis. But with hep C and things like that, and hep B being a, a concern with these um, opioids, especially with the injectable kind, um, you're not only getting the, the damage um, to the liver from those viruses, but you also can get it just from the opioid use itself. Um, and so that puts the patient at risk. Um, they have cases of you know, patients having a opioid-induced bowel syndrome where they're just having this, not just the constipation that we think about with um, opioids, but bloating and then, you know, just overall pain. And, and it can basically get to the point where the pain's so high that um, it's what they call necrotic bowel syndrome um, because the pain's, like, just unbearable for these patients. And, and that can happen, you know, in somebody who's using these chronically. Yeah, and they can also have an ileus, which is yeah. unfortunate as well. Um, also, opioid-related leukoencephalopathy, which I thought was interesting because it's it's an encephalopathy that was initially described with heroin vapor inhalation. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's described in different ways um, as far as what the clinical spectrum looks like. Um, but it's specific, specifically associated with heroin vapor inhalation. I was also interested in opioid amnestic syndrome or amnestic syndrome. Don't know how you would say that, but um, they've only described 19 cases of this in the United States and Canada, like ever. Um, and it's characterized by an acute onset amnesia, um, evidence of prior opioid use on history or toxicology and MRI showing acute bilateral hippocampal ischemia. So basically they have decreased blood flow to the brain and they have amnesia associated with opioid use. So 19 cases of opioid amnestic syndrome. What about the, uh, the higher rates of motor vehicle collisions? Yeah, definitely patients who, um, are heroin users do have a higher rate of motor vehicle collisions compared to the general population. Um, same as far as those that are arrested, um, while driving intoxicated. One thing that's kind of interesting though, is, you know, patients who are being treated with either methadone or buprenorphine, which again, we'll get to, um, they do not have um, significant um, deficits in tasks related to driving performance. So as long as, the, with the caveat, as long as they are not also using other forms of illicit drugs. So that that's one thing that I've actually heard somebody kind of bring up is, well, you're, you're coming to the clinic to get methadone, you treat them with the methadone, they get in the car and they drive back home. Um, statistically speaking, we haven't seen a correlation between increased motor vehicle accidents and actual opioid treatment. It's when they're using it in a non-controlled situation where we're having issues. And that also goes kind of against the, the, the argument, or I guess the state, the mindset that a lot of people have medical, non-medical, um, that treatment with drugs for opioid dependence is, you know, taking them off one addictive substance and, um, making them dependent or addicted to another substance, which, you know, is, is something that I've considered before as well. Um, but the, the idea is that you're decreasing the risk of either, um, overdose and death and mortality by switching them to these other drugs that might have a lower risk of that. Um, and you're positively affecting their quality of life by, you know, providing them with, um, a legal route of treatment, seeking treatment, um, where they can remain generally unimpaired and be able to, you know, function, uh, in society as opposed to, you know, some other opioid that's going to significantly impair them, high risk for overdose, and just the process of obtaining that illegally 
um, will negatively affect their, their outcomes as well. You know, and I actually brought that point up to a, a physician that I met that was working closely with all, with patients in a, in a methadone treatment facility. And, and I said, you know, one of the things I always hear is kind of like a rebuttal to patients, you know, being in one of these programs is like, just like you said, you know, you're, you're trading one substance for another. And, and he kind of explained it pretty well because, you know, one thing we don't consider is the gen- potential for genetic you know, aspect of this, there is, does seem to be some sort of genetic component. And he said, as far as addiction goes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he was saying that, uh, you, you know, if you have a patient, you know, they're both parents were addicted to opioids or heroin or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, they have uncles and aunts or brothers, sisters, whatever the case may be that their family members are, they've been on these, you know, in and out of rehab their whole life. You know, he said that you, if you, if that person had some sort of other psych disorder, schizophrenia or something like that, we, we would put them on medication forever and we wouldn't think twice about it. But because these, it's, you know, got that stigma about being an opioid, you know, these patients, if you look at it like a disorder, which we should as medical professionals, you look at it as a, as a disorder and realize that these patients are just, you know, for whatever reason, this is their, you know, just their, their lifelong battle. And there are patients who overall will have a much better quality of life by just keeping them on this thing, letting them have a normal life basically by giving them a dosed, um, uh, amount of an opioid to keep them into control. And he was even saying that, you know, think about it from a population standpoint. He says, let's say I don't want to continue someone's treatment and, you know, they, go and they get some heroin off the street and they overdose, you know, that person maybe doesn't have insurance or something. He's like, that, that cost is going to be in the healthcare system, um, you know, and whether the patient lives or dies. And then if the patient does pass away, it's like, well, then, you know, that's just one person we lost that we could have at least given them a, a longer and maybe more f- fulfilled life just by keeping them on treatment. And, you know, and I've, I've heard a lot of that, though, but you see Suboxone come through your pharmacy over and over again. You're like, aren't you supposed to be getting off this stuff? And isn't mm-hmm. it a treatment? It, it's not always that cut and dry for a lot of people. Right. It's, it's not, uh, you wouldn't think that way with blood pressure medicine, you yeah. know? And we'll talk about it more yeah. in, when we get to treatment too, but you can come off. Yes. It, but it kind of has to be a shared decision making. Sorry, I was just so excited I couldn't wait. Yeah, <laughs> right. Getting ahead of yourself. Um, but yeah, that goes, to, the genetic component goes to some risk factors I wanted to mention. So family history of any substance use disorder does predispose you to opioid use disorder. Um, so there does seem to be a genetic component to it. Um, tobacco use disorder or smoking, you know, being addicted to tobacco um, consistently seems to be a risk factor as well. Um, mental health disorders, uh, history of legal problems or incarceration. Um, interestingly, younger age, so age below 40 to 45 years old, seems to put you at a bit of a higher risk for um, opioid abuse. Though there are, and there's also studies that show that um, I think adults over 50 are more likely to fall into this issue after um, being on medications for pain, or they're they're more likely to seek it for pain, um, whereas younger individuals are more likely to seek it for, uh, I guess, more pleasure or dopamine euphoric type effects. So, um, yeah, all all that's very interesting, and I guess helpful for painting the picture um, for whatever patient you're going to be seeing. So I guess going to keep going through the uh, kind of assessment and the workup. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you, you, again, before we even get to the treatment option, the, the whole workup of these patients is really important. So we've kind of, once we go through the actual diagnosis um, piece of it where we, you know, they meet the criteria, find the severity, all that, um, then we still need to kind of look at a substance use history. So first thing we want to look at is what is their kind of average consumption. Um, and that can be really difficult, especially if they're getting um, the medication off the street, like in the case of heroin, because it can be cut with so many different types of things. I mean, they cut it with aspirin, and, um, uh, Sudafed, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of different things, cocaine, um, fentanyl. And so it's really hard to be able to kind of truly know what dose you know, a patient is on because it may not be consistent at all and it may be all over the place. Now, even innocuous, innocuous substances like sugar and powdered milk. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, all that goes to how potent is the, the heroin that they were getting versus someone else. Uh, and then, you know, how are they actually administering it? So just we always think heroin as being like the one that we give intravenously, but you, you can actually administer any opioid that way. You just melt down the tablets or whatever you're trying to do and inject them um, – 
through uh, IVUs or IV route rather. Um, so the if they are using it intravenously, the bioavailability is obviously very very high, and so that's going to be a patient who has had much higher doses of. Uh, you know, of, of that opioid. So their tolerance may be a lot different. Um, intranasal, um, requires, um, you know, not a lot of effort as far as getting high bioavailability either. So you don't have to use like a lot of equipment or anything like that. Um, you know, opioids can be smoked as well. Um, like we said earlier with, with pure opium, uh, and then, you know, the tolerance kind of ties into that because like how, we, it's hard for us to predict kind of like when they're going to have those withdrawal symptoms because we don't truly know where they're at as far as they're dosing in a lot of time. Now, they may be on prescribed opioids, and, and then we can actually figure out from there um, a little bit more accurately. But a lot of times it's it's a lot more complicated than just looking at the prescription bottle, unfortunately. Yep, yep. Sometimes to estimate or guesstimate, I guess, you know, how how much they use they'll ask them how much they spend on opioids you know mm. in a day which varies based on where you are and the quality of heroin you're getting supposedly but it can range from twenty dollars a day to 200 per day and so if they're spending a lot of money more than likely they they are using more than someone who's not spending as much money also want to try to assess when their last use was um, and if we can figure out what that dose was. So again, we can kind of predict um, when we start seeing those symptoms of withdrawal that can come about. Um, if they've ever been on treatment before, so if they've ever been in an opioid um, use disorder treatment program, uh, we can look at a physical exam to kind of see, you know, if they have the presence of track marks, you know, which are just kind of those you know, marks that can happen from chronic intravenous use. Um, it could be, uh, you know, like nasal septum looking for kind of perforation um, from you know, taking it intranasally multiple times. Um, if they, they may have a heart murmur, um, which could be, kind of indicate that they may have a subacute bacterial endocarditis, which is something that they're higher at risk for. Um, screening for things like HIV, uh, hep B, hep C, um, those types of things. Um, and then also looking for like opioid intoxication acutely as well. When they first present, they still may be intoxicated. So looking for those um, kind of characteristic pinpoint pupils, if you will, um, patients being just excessive drowsiness, maybe slurred speech or seeming to have impaired cognition, um, all those things. Because then, again, obviously that can, uh, if they are still acutely intoxicated, then we can do an opioid detection and um, like a urine um, and, and screen and, and basically figure out hopefully what uh, it is that's actually in their system. Yeah, and they can screen positive for heroin one to three days after um, their last use in an opioid screen. Yep. Yeah. Um, cool. Something I thought was kind of interesting is um, an opioid drug screen can have a false positive and patients that are taking rifampin and Saw also that. fluoroquinolones. So if you're taking that. Cipro, bring that bottle with you. <laughs> As proof. as proof, just like you bring that poppy seed bun. Yes, could you imagine? You just had a delicious burger, bagel, and then, a large bagel. For some reason, or had an excessive amount of poppy seeds on it, and you tested positive falsely. That'd be a rough way to explain. Yeah, I was it in and out. <laughs> I, I not exactly the same, but similar. I use a um, uh, one of my medicines in epilepsy is Epidiolex, mm -hmm. and it's a you know cannabidiol, and so patients can screen positive yeah. for marijuana THC. screens. So it's something you always have to. Uh, to warn them about. Well, the good news is they can do confirmatory testing with like gas chromatography or mass spec and basically kind of weed out if it is one of those false positives. Right. I'd be like, no, I just had a huge poppy seed bun. I want that, you know, gas spec or whatever you just said. <laughs> Give me that. Gas chromatography gas coming chromatography right up. now. Yeah. All right. Where do we want to go from here? Want to treat this thing? Sure. All right. So, um, treatment of opioid use disorder. We only have a few drugs, but the approach is important. Uh, so first line for most people is the medication therapy, either with an opioid agonist or antagonist, um, with psychosocial treatment added on as adjunct. Some patients may prefer just having the psychosocial treatment alone without medication. Um, in general, we see the medications as being more effective. Um, the data, even with psychosocial therapy as adjunct, is mixed and definitely alone. Um, the um, the uh, medication therapy is much more effective. So if possible, we would encourage um, the use of the drugs um, to replace the, the illicit opioids 
along with psychosocial treatment. But it has to be a shared decision-making situation. So you have to talk to the patient, possibly family members, see what they've tried before. Um, so it, it's probably going to be a fairly long uh, visit when you're deciding which route to go. Uh, but in general, we would uh, encourage the use of the medications first, specifically the agonists. And, and they've, they've even listed some studies that show that when the patient feels like their concerns, their needs are being met, they are much more likely to um, remain in remission um, and, and on their, their, their prescribed treatment instead of you know, going uh, back on their previous opioid. Yeah, and I feel like you could probably use some tobacco cessation mm-hmm. um, approaches here as far as readiness to quit. If you're forcing a patient to use buprenorphine or some other drug when all they want is some counseling, um, it's probably not going to be, you're not going to have as good outcomes as if they are ready to initiate a medication and, and, you know, stop and come off of the opioids. So let's talk real quick about regulation in the United States specifically. So uh, with the two medications that Nicole had already mentioned, the methadone and the buprenorphine, um, these are, are both controlled substances and specifically methadone in order to actually, you know, dispense methadone to a patient um, for opioid use disorder, it needs to be given in a licensed opioid treatment program facility. So you can't just, you know, go and send a prescription to a retail pharmacy, at least you're not supposed to, and uh, have them prescribe the methadone for the patient to take in this regard. If you're actually putting a patient on methadone for this purpose, uh, it needs to be at an opioid treatment um, facility. Um, buprenorphine can be dispensed um, either in a treatment facility or um, in other, you know, you know, community practices as well. Um, but the prescriber will have to go through specialized training um, and get a special waiver uh, form that they can um, basically shows they're allowed to prescribe buprenorphine for this um, particular diagnosis. And so their DEA will have an X um, in the front of it instead of their uh, normal letter. And that's uh, a way of kind of alerting the pharmacist that the provider is in, uh, is able to prescribe that um, that treatment. Right, because they have to be certified for it, yeah. Now, naltrexone, um, not a controlled substance. Um, and so not a controlled substance, and it uh, definitely can be pretty much prescribed by anyone who has prescriptive authority, um, as well as um, dispensed from any pharmacy. Uh, it's a little bit easier time with the naltrexone as far as the regulations go. Um, some REMS programs and things just to kind of monitor, depending on the formulation and whatnot, but um, not a controlled substance, so a lot less kind of hoops to jump through as far as getting it. However, the effectiveness, depending on the severities, where you know it can kind of get a little murky. Right. So it's usually used in more mild situations, yeah. and it can also be dangerous because if you are initiating naltrexone on a patient who is currently opioid dependent or has not fully withdrawn, it can induce a withdrawal, and bad things can happen. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk for a minute about medically supervised opioid withdrawal. Um, because of course patients become physiologically dependent on these drugs. They experience withdrawal symptoms after abrupt, um, termination. So a lot of times providers will take this approach. They might call it detoxing. Um, but the idea is for it to reduce withdrawal symptoms, um, initially kind of as a first step in first step in treatment. And you wouldn't do this as standalone therapy. You wouldn't just let them completely withdraw. Um, you would want to use subsequent treatment with with the drugs. So they, they call, you know, using buprenorphine, naloxone, methadone, they call it um, medication-assisted treatment or medication for addiction treatment, and it's usually abbreviated as MAT, M-A-T. Um, so we might call it MAT just th- throughout the podcast. Um, or um, adding that onto psychosocial treatment to prevent relapse. So withdrawal from opioids should be fully completed before initiating naltrexone because it's an opioid antagonist. Um, With methadone and buprenorphine, you don't have to have a full withdrawal before you initiate them. Um, Both of them are usually referred to as opioid agonists, even though technically buprenorphine is a partial mu opioid agonist as opposed to a full. Um, But they can be started for a person who's currently using opioids before the withdrawal is complete. Um, and both of those are targeting the mu receptor yeah. kind of by itself, right? Right. So we have the mu kappa and delta, but both of those are targeting mu. Um, this medically supervised opioid withdrawal, it can increase some patients' risk for overdose um, because these patients have a really high risk for relapse. Um, and in patients who have, you know, come off of the opioids, they're going to have a lower physiologic tolerance 
following the supervised withdrawal. So then if they go straight back to using the amount of opioids they were before when they had a significant amount of tolerance, they can overdose respiratory depression and um, mortality. So uh, something to be aware of and something to counsel them on that if they are coming off and they've been off for a while, they can't go back to the same amount of opioids or they're going to have a significant effect from it. Um, you can even do a naloxone challenge test with, you know, Narcan is naloxone. Um, it can be performed before someone initiates naltrexone to ensure that the patient is no longer physically dependent on it. So we'll get more to naltrexone in a second, but I just thought that was interesting that they can, you know, literally use naloxone, wait an hour, give them an opioid assessment to see if they're having symptoms of withdrawal. And then they can say, okay, you know, this person is no longer dependent. We can start naltrexone safely. thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, um, do you mind if I jump in and we'll talk yeah. real briefly about some of the formulations? Go for it. Buprenorphine? Because there's a few pretty common ones. I'm sure you guys have kind of seen some of these out there, but um, there are a few different commercially available buprenorphine formulations. So they have the plain buprenorphine tablets, um, which is a, just a sublingual tablet. Um, those particular sublingual tablets, um, they basically they have a target dose. Um, so once the patient is on you know, therapy, they've had their initial um, kind of dosing range, and their, their target maintenance dose is 16 milligrams. Um, and they also have a brand name Suboxone, which does contain a sublingual tablet of buprenorphine, but it also has a um, naloxone component as well, um, which is basically there for the sole purpose of being like an abuse deterrent. So if somebody were to try to like break down that tablet or melt it, um, the naloxone would kick in and it would just basically keep the opioid from being able to bind to the receptor. And you see a lot of these kind of anti-abuse um, mechanisms in even opi regular opioid, like oxycodone tablets, long acting or, or whatnot, where if they tried to, you know, melt it down to inject, it gums up and they aren't able to inject it or something like that. They've, they've attempted these things. Um, but, you know, we still have a lot of issues. Um, so for Suboxone, the sublingual tablets, your target dose is 16 milligrams slash 4 milligrams of naloxone. Um, and then we also have the sublingual films, which same exact targeting dose. Um, they have a few different uh, basically formula or strengths available on the market, so you can kind of get a little bit more specific with your dosing. But same target dose as the sublingual tablets. Where things get a little bit crazy is when you talk about like the Zubzolve um, brand name, which again, same makeup as the Suboxone, except comes in all these different formulations. Um, the target dose of that one is 11.4 milligrams of buprenorphine and 2.9 milligrams of naloxone. Um, and then the Bunival is uh, the buccal film, um, and that one's target dose is 8.4 milligrams of um, buprenorphine. 1.4 milligrams of naloxone. Yeah, that extra 0.6 milligrams to it's, bring it up, it just wasn't working. So it they wasn't. Had to, had to bring it down to 8.4. Way more complicated with a bunch of decimal places. Yeah, no idea why. But um, yeah, so make sure that uh, obviously the patient has on the right formulation that was prescribed and, and is on the correct target dose. So if they are on the Zubzolve or one of those other more obscure ones, then um, you know make sure that the target dose is appropriate. Yeah. So as far as... Um, Mike talked earlier about stratification, moderate to severe, more mild. So first line for moderate to severe disorder when you're looking at medications. Um, in general, buprenorphine is considered first line over methadone or naltrexone. Um, they're probably put in that order, buprenorphine and methadone close to the top with naltrexone a little closer to the bottom. Methadone is definitely a reasonable alternative um, in patients with a, a history of a poor response to buprenorphine if they've taken it before and it didn't work very well, or previous misuse or diversion of buprenorphine, um, or if they have higher levels of opioid physical dependence. Um, they'll usually say that methadone actually has better outcomes as far as you know effectiveness, but it's also higher risk for overdose. So because buprenorphine is that partial mu agonist, um, it is lower risk for respiratory depression in the case of an overdose. Um, if they decline agonist treatment, they don't want to do that. Um, and they've completed or can complete a full withdrawal from opioids. Um, you can consider the naltrexone. Usually the long acting injectable is the, the treatment of choice if you're going to use naltrexone. Another thing too, even though, like you said, methadone 
technically maybe a little bit more effective. Um, the actual like process of being of getting dosed on methadone is is much more disruptive to somebody's yeah. day, mm-hmm. their quality of life. Because you when you first are getting in one of these programs, these patients come every single day early in the morning to get their dose of their the methadone. Once they have in most of the places, like for example, the one I worked in, um, they had nurses, they had counselors, they had the physician, they had the pharmacist, um, all in under one roof, and the patient literally just went to. The different areas they spent time got worked up triage by the nurse they spend time with their counselor they go to touch base with their physician they come to the pharmacist and the pharmacist can titrate their dose according to you know their needs but um the the patient has to come every day to start now once they've built up some time in the program then they will get their dose and then one take-home dose to do the next day so they kind of get a little bit more um, freedom there and then they kind of goes from there to where patients can have like a week take-home and they have to bring in their empty bottles and all that um, and the second they do something that is breaking the rules of the clinic, they go right back to the beginning of treatment to come every single day again. Right. So, and so it's pretty tough. And so the idea of, of that is obviously to prevent misuse and diversion, but at the same time, that's going to, you have to have kind of a highly motivated person to mm-hmm. pursue methadone treatment um, because they're not going to want to do all that. They might just rather find it on the street. Um, so yeah, methadone, much higher risk of misuse and lethal overdose versus buprenorphine. And I know at least in our state, there's a big push towards not prescribing buprenorphine alone, but prescribing the Suboxone brand, buprenorphine with naltrexone. Um, so I don't know how, if that's across the country that there's being a push for that, but the idea is to, to decrease the potential misuse of buprenorphine as well. And, and the interesting thing about that too is, if somebody's taking buprenorphine and they start taking excessive amounts of it, it does have a point where you get a kind of a plateau effect and you're no longer going to have any euphoria or anything like that. So it's much harder to abuse that one than something like methadone or something like, or one of the other standard opioids, um, which is kind of what Cole was saying when the the risk of of overdose is so much higher with something like methadone because you're not going to get that plateau effect. Yeah. Um, So that was moderate to severe. If you think of a patient as mild, so maybe they don't, they don't have as significant a physical dependence or whatever, you've classified them as mild, um, it is reasonable um, for patients who are going to be receiving medication, they're highly motivated, um, they can receive naltrexone. And usually they're going to have it um, as a long-acting injectable, uh, so they don't have to take it every day. Um, under supervision, Ideally, um, alternatively, you can use oral naltrexone that somebody's taking every day, um, but that would be more for a patient who's pretty highly motivated, you feel, um, and they refuse injections or they have good family or external support to make sure they take it. Uh, most of the time, it's easier just to use the, the long-acting injectable. And that's the big thing they talk about with the non-adherence because, you know, you can try, okay, well, if their patient's not being inherent, maybe you are going to do supervised medication dosing to where maybe it's something like methadone where they have to come to the clinic to, to receive their dose. Uh, but if you have a patient that's not even following up with, with those appointments, then, yeah, 100%, the long-acting and subcutaneous um, either buprenorphine or the naltrexone, if they've already gone through the withdrawal, can definitely play a role. Yeah, and naltrexone focuses on the blocking those mu, mu opioid receptors, so the patient is not going to get an effect or euphoria if they use illicit drugs, whereas if they use higher doses of illicit opioids, they can get a, effects from methadone and, and buprenorphine. Um, yeah, but and the idea behind methadone as well is that you may get the pain control that you need for a patient who needs that without giving them the high um, or you're um, preventing withdrawal side effects, which might be the reason a patient is pursuing illicit opioids uh, without giving them the high or the euphoria. The other thing that we probably oftentimes don't think about is what happens if a patient who's receiving methadone or buprenorphine um, for this particular diagnosis gets into some sort of like a motor vehicle accident or has some kind of trauma to where they have to be hospitalized. Uh, and the, kind of the recommendation there is the hospitalist or the internal medicine doc or whoever's in charge of that patient needs to um, contact the opioid treatment center um, or the prescriber that gave the patient the buprenorphine in the first place to kind of verify that patient's current dose so they continue that dose while they're inpatient um, and, and healing. And the good thing about buprenorphine especially is that you're much like less likely to cause respiratory depression and, and overdose. And so if the patient reports a reasonable daily dose that they're on, you can kind of start them on that until you can confirm it with the 
patient's um, substance abuse provider. Yep. Yep. So those, that's kind of the big stuff about the drugs. We'll have a little bit more, but um, adjunctively, you can add on psychosocial treatment. So this could be individual or group substance use disorder counseling, um, various ways of doing this, cognitive behavioral therapies, 12-step programs, um, motivational interviewing, contingency management, various other um, addiction types of addiction counseling and mutual help groups and that sort of thing. Um, so it just depends on what... Um, um, you know, things that you have access to as a provider um, or maybe even what the patient has used before with success that you can kind of push them towards. So real quick, too, while we're kind of on the the topic of treatment, I do want to kind of mention a few sort of patient education clinical pearls that are good to kind of make sure you have tucked away. So depending on the, the formulation of buprenorphine that patients can be on, um, so let's say they're on the sublingual tablets um, and they require more than one tablet or multiple tablets in order to reach their dose. Um, you can actually place um, the multiple tablets um, under the tongue all at once. Um, you don't have to separate them out or, or time them any certain way. You can put all tablets under your tongue and let them dissolve. And then if it's uncomfortable, you definitely can can space it out over time. Um, the sublingual film, however, um, they, they want you to actually to have the patient drink water prior to placing the film to help it dissolve. Uh, and then if you have to do two films at a time, um, they want you to do the second film on the opposite side of the tongue um, and don't allow the films to touch. If it's the buccal films, that was the sublingual film. If it's the buccal film, they want the patient to wet the inside of their cheek uh, with their tongue or rinse it with water prior to placing the, the film on there. And then hold the film by the edges with two fingers, place uh, on inside of the cheek until it's fully dissolved. And it can take up to 30 minutes. Mm. That's um, quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, again, if you have two films, place the second film on the opposite cheek and let that dissolve the same way. Um, but do not... Uh, let them touch, and you do not want to chew or, or swallow the film itself. You need it to absorb buccally because swallowing it, obviously, you're then sending it through first-pass metabolism and, and all that. The whole point is to get it into systemic circulation quicker. Right. So, And then make sure if it is the uh, buccal films, you're not eating or drinking until the film is completely dissolved. So make sure you, can, you won't uh, be too hungry during that 30 minutes. Right. It's key. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be hungry and do that right before. You sure don't. No. Um, a little more about the drugs. So we didn't talk about special populations. So with pregnancy, um, opioid dependence at birth has significantly increased in the last 20 years, I think fourfold or more since 1999. Um, in pregnancy, methadone would be the first line treatment of choice. Um, so it can be used. Uh, buprenorphine can be used as well. So it would be a reasonable alternative, but methadone um, would be considered first line. And I don't think we mentioned the methadone as far as side effects goes. It can cause um, arrhythmias, prolong the QT. Uh, so something to be aware of with methadone as well. And that respiratory depression, especially if they have any sort of concurrent use with uh, benzos or alcohol or anything, those should be strictly forbidden. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What about constipation? Is that a side effect? I think it is a side effect. I think it is. <laughs> Get it? Segue. So one of the things that, you know, when a patient's on opioid treatment for pain, you know, op opioid-induced constipation is something that we think about pretty regularly. But what about when they're on an opioid for opioid use disorder? Um, that constipation is still a, a factor. Um, I actually worked with a patient just recently who was is uh, using methadone for opioid use disorder and um, the constipation is so bad it's like it's really really negatively affecting his uh, quality of life um, to the point where you have to use enemas every single day tons yeah. of laxatives really really severe um, and so you know d depending on which type of clinic you're in and, and things like that you may not have access to some of the prescription medications that are out there so a lot of times they end up having to use enemas or stool softeners laxatives over the counter it's kind of like first line therapy, which for some patients may be just fine. But uh, for patients who have this really severe constipation, uh, it's something that we really need to escalate to a, a prescribed uh, medication, if at all possible. Um, so I'll just kind of mention a few of them. Um, one, Relistar is the brand name, um, methyl naltrexone. Um, and that's typically used after a patient's tried OTC options and failed that um, Failed to get relief from their symptoms. Um, it's available as a sub Q injection or an oral tablet. Um, adverse effects obviously, if you're 
stopping the constipation. The one unfortunate side effect is you can go too far the other way and have uh, instances of diarrhea, GI pain, flatulence. Um, but it does work very quickly, um, especially obviously the injectable um, to the point where they say maybe even be close to uh, a restroom if, <laughs> after you inject it. Um, renal dose adjustments, so you need to decrease the dose um, in a patient whose creatinine clearance is less than 30 mils per minute. Uh, and the other one out there is um, the Movantic. Um, that's still, I believe that's still brand name. I think it is too. Um, and that's going to be used alone for at least three days. And then if needed, you can add in an OTC laxative to it. But you typically want to use it as monotherapy for at least three days. Same kind of adverse effects um, as the Relstar, except um, in this one, we have to worry about drug-drug interactions a little bit more. So um, we have to avoid use in patients that are using strong CYP3A4 inhibitors. Um, if they're on moderate 3A4 inhibitors, we just decrease the dose of the Movantic by 50%. Renal dose adjustment, if creatinine clearance is less than 60, we also are dropping that dose at least in half and, and going from there. And then that one's important to take on an empty stomach to increase absorption. Um, we also have um, a drug that you're probably familiar with for things like IBS. We have Amatiza, which is actually approved for opioid-induced constipation. Um, now, there is another medication that tends to work a little faster, just statistically speaking, because Amatiza, especially if you look at the studies for like IBS and whatnot, it can take like a month to really see the effects of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but if we look at our uh, guanolate cyclase um, and like where we have Linzess, um, is one that is not currently FDA approved for um, opioid-induced constipation, but there are some studies showing efficacy um, in this patient population, and I, I wouldn't be super surprised if they eventually tried to get FDA approval, um, but it is used off-label, um, and I've talked to some pain management clinics that also use Linzess. The, the effects of Linzess typically happen much quicker than Amatiza, um, being two separate mechanisms, but the Linzess can have its kind of uh, symptom relief within the first week of starting therapy. So, um, and I know like at my clinic where we have 340B pharmacy, we get Linzess for like five bucks for patients. And so we could, we put our opioid induced constipation patients right on Linzess. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and interesting that most of the drugs you mentioned initially are opioid antagonists, mm -hmm. but the idea is to have uh, a bowel withdrawal. They even quote that the goal is to have bowel withdrawal as opposed to, or without systemic opioid withdrawal, because that would not be great. But yeah, they're antagonists. So summarize, we got moderate to severe. We're using most likely buprenorphine in a lot of patients, maybe methadone if they're willing to go to a treatment center, correct? Yep. And then we, a lot of times, we'll try to use therapy as well along with that if, if possible, if the patient's willing. Um, mild, if as long as they've gone, you know, don't have any issues with withdrawal symptoms or things like that, then they can go on naltrexone, a little bit mm -hmm. more of a mild medication, um, less kind of... Um, regulations and whatnot right and uh and then if that's not working they can switch to one of the alternatives yeah and if they even if they you know may have had more than just mild dependency maybe they are physically dependent if they're post withdrawal you can yep. consider the naltrexone at that point too um but if they have a treatment failure or they are currently using and they're physically dependent then you want to use the buprenorphine transmucosal specifically um if you know they have a treatment failure then um, they failed because of high levels of physical dependence, then you might change them to methadone. If not, you might change them to a different formulation of buprenorphine and just kind of go on from there until you find something that works for them. Yeah. And and also, too, you know, we, we mentioned a lot of the formulations with naltrexone, but they have so many different um, formulations that are available, um, whether it's the long-acting injectable, they have the pellet, they have um, oral tablets even. Um, so lots of different formulations available um, for naltrexone. So if you do need to go that route, you can kind of pick your vehicle of choice. Right. And, you know, they talked about why they would prefer the long-acting one, and yeah. which makes sense. Absolutely. Right? So you can't just skip your day of naltrexone and then take some opioids and wait a couple of days and, you know. Sure can. Take your old naltrexone again. Yep. What else you got? I don't think anything, man. Anything for you? I think we hit it all. <laughs> Every single aspect. Every single piece of opioid use disorder. Yeah, but um, 
Yeah, the, I, I hope that was helpful. Um, make sure we'll have our emails in the show notes. If you guys have any specific questions, um, we'll do our best to get back to you as quick as possible. Um, and uh, we'd love to hear your comments. If any of you work in this type of field and you want to you know, add your um, two cents or, or personal experience, um, we'd be happy to discuss that in another episode or um, through Instagram, one of the social media platforms. But um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that was a helpful review and uh, we could spend hours and hours and hours diving very deep into this. So I always feel like we, yeah, we didn't even go never, through, uh, this, we didn't even go through pain management or mm-hmm. how to come off of opioids or anything like that. So plenty so, of places to go. So many places to go. And yeah. I always feel like we never do it a disservice, but that just means we have to that many more hundreds. Well, of we hit one thing and then, you know, we can just hit other things. That's why you're, you're on the team Cole, Cause <laughs> you're half full. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on if you're filling it up or if you're drinking it. Yeah. 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 There you go. That's yeah. also a good point. <laughs> Um, but thank you guys so much for uh, for listening, and I, and I hope you guys like this format of continuing education. Um, you know, we're really excited about this. Um, huge thanks to FreeCE.com for kind of partnering with us and seeing this th- seeing this through. This is a, a pretty innovative way of looking at uh, continuing it. I'm I'm really excited to see how this plays out. So, um, if you're a FreeCE member, make sure that you follow the link in the show notes. Take that test, get your CE credit, even if you just renewed your license, like I know we did in South Carolina. Um, you, you don't need to procrastinate this year. Get them all done, and you'll be ready to go for, uh, for for next year. And you'll have so many extra credits that you didn't even need. The board will be very impressed. So they will. Be, they'll send you a letter uh, with yes. a license in it. We promise. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Cold promises. But um, yeah, thank you guys. And uh, if you have any questions at all, like I said, our emails will be in the show notes as well. You can reach us on any of the social media platforms. It's just Core Console RX um, is the handle for Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. Um, and then, uh, if you have any ideas for topics or anything, or, um, you know, you have somebody you'd like to see on the show as a guest make sure you reach out to us and we'll see you guys next time. Have a great one.